Good morning. It is good to be back together again today, and we know that there are more than the normal amount of our folks that are home right now, snuggled cozily on the couch watching a live stream, uh, given the weather and the road conditions. For all of you who are at home, uh, it's good to have you with us live stream-wise, and it's just good to be together. And it's good, I must say, as one of your pastors, it is a joy to stand up here again uh, and to have the privilege of preaching after uh, these recent months of lots of sickness that have kept me sidelined. So um, I do want you to know, uh, as you're turning in your Bibles, if I could encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, I want you to know that our brother Alex is, uh, has been, is ministering the Word in a church in Havertown today, and I just, uh, we want to be praying for him and upholding him as he serves uh, another body of Christ. And I uh, do want to also just mention a workshop, a prayer workshop. This is the second in a series of probably four of them that we are going to be holding in this year uh, just on how to pray. Uh, and this week on Saturday at 10 o'clock, we will be holding uh, part two, 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock here uh, at the building. Uh, you can use the Q- QR code uh, that's on your bulletin this morning uh, to register, uh, to let us know, RSVP, so we can know how to plan, or there will be a link on Wednesday's uh, prayer uh, reminder that goes out. out. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 20, for those that would not be aware, we have in recent months been preaching our way through the book of Colossians, uh, and we have come to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 20 and verse 21. Uh, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Heavenly Father, would you please come and speak to us even now as we open your word. Give enlightenment, bring conviction, bring faith, give hope. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we, as we open up God's Word here this morning, uh, those of you who were here when I last preached, which was the first week of January, might remember that I offered a brilliant insight into this text, and that was that chapter 3 of Colossians comes after chapters 1 and 2. Uh, that that was the extent of my brilliance that morning. You will you will remember that in Colossians one and two, we see, as was read earlier in our worship, we see that Jesus Christ is preeminent. So in verse chapter one and verse seventeen, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be 
preeminent or have first place. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus is first. Jesus is in first place. He is preeminent. In Him all the fullness of God dwells. And through Him, through Him, God's intention, according to this text, is to reconcile to Himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Jesus is first. He has no equals. He doesn't really have any competitors. He has a few pretenders that are out there trying to seize His throne. But Jesus is Lord of all. He rules and has first place. And having first place, the text tells us, He plans to reconcile to bring back together all things in Himself. You know, this is, this is an extraordinary, a glorious aspect of the Gospel. The Gospel, and I want to say this carefully, the, the Gospel, first of all, reconciles us to God. The Gospel, first of all, comes to us as guilty sinners, as, as we heard our brother share his own testimony and the testimony of those that are in the prison and are being visited. We are all in the same fix. We are all in the same mess. We are all guilty sinners. The Gospel comes to us and says, guilty though you are, and I am guilty though we are, Jesus says to us, you are forgiven. I have died for you. I have made peace for you. So we are reconciled to God. But that's not the end of the Gospel. That's, that's what kind of gets it all started in our lives. That's what gets us back into right relationship with God. The fact of the matter, the truth of the matter is that God is not just reconciling us to Him so that we can go to heaven and be with Him forever and ever and ever and ever. He is doing all of that, and that is of first importance because if you don't have reconciliation with God, then you're doomed. You have no hope. But we have that, but there's more. Now, having reconciled us to Himself, He is reconciling everything to Himself. In other words... Wherever there is alienation and division in God's world, wherever there is animosity and hostility, wherever there is wrath and prejudice and classism and oppression and hatred and malice in God's universe, wherever there is brokenness and bigotry and bloodshed, wherever any of that exists, Jesus Christ is first and He is going to reconcile all things and all people and all creation together for His glory. That is 
the plan of God. It is wonderful. And you cannot overstate the wonder of it and the importance of it. It is wonderful that Jesus Christ came in the world to save me. But He also came into the world to save you and us and a lost and a dying world and a creation that is broken and groaning and He is going to fix it all. He is going to fix it all. Now what we need to see is that in chapter 3, Paul starts to teach us how to live in such a way that we are part of that reconciling power of Christ. So that we are actually instruments in His hand. That we are no longer being divisive and no longer hostile and alienated, but we actually are part of this reconciling that is going on. So in chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, Paul tells us to put to death all kinds of sins that are divisive, that bring about warfare and conflict. And then in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he says, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body. Do you see what Paul is doing here? He says in chapter 1, Jesus is first place to reconcile all things to Himself in peace. And now in chapter 3, He is saying you as believers should live in such a way that you are a part of that reconciling work. And then He gets very specific. He addresses our marriages that are all too often unreconciled. And He says to wives, in verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then he says to husbands, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. By the way, if you think that that call to husbands and wives is harder for one gender than for the other, uh, you're not paying attention to the language of the text. They are equally hard. It's very hard to submit to leadership. It is very hard to love in such a way that you pour down your, out your life for another. In Ephesians 5, Paul expands this and says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who is preeminent over all things, reconciling all things to Himself, wants to reconcile our marriages. He wants to bring them back together. And Paul doesn't stop there. The preeminent Christ has first place in order to reconcile children and parents. That's what we see in verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And now to parents, in verse 21, fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. In Ephesians 6, Paul expands that and says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, 
bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. To be sure, this parenting, reconciling work belongs to both fathers and mothers. Um, It's interesting that Paul targets the fathers here. Wondered about that as I reflected on the text. I wonder why the target is on fathers. I think in the first place it's because fathers are meant by God. When things are as they should be, fathers are meant by God to be the heads of their household and to lead well and to lead lovingly. But I also think just given how the text is presented to us, that perhaps the reason Paul targets fathers here is because fathers are most likely to fail in what he says here. Fathers may be most prone to do the thing that Paul tells parents not to do. Again, in Ephesians 6.4, fathers do not exasperate your children. The implication is that dads, this is something we do too often. Stop doing it. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6.4. Now here in verse 21 of chapter 3 of Colossians, fathers do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. I know in Ephesians 6, Paul wrote Ephesians and Colossians at the same time. In Ephesians 6, Paul tells fathers, don't, don't, exasperate your children, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Here in Colossians, Paul doesn't even bother with the positive command. He just goes after the negative one. Fathers, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't provoke them or embitter them, or else they will become discouraged. What I take from that text is that generally speaking, and by the way, the Bible sometimes speaks in generalities, Um, generally speaking, men as heads of households can easily misuse their strength and even abuse their leadership roles in ways that are harsh toward their wives and in ways that embitter and dishearten their children. And God is saying to us as dads, stop making your children mad. And bring them up. Now this isn't to say to moms, okay, dads can't embitter their children, but you can. (laughs) No, Paul is focusing on dads because... Dads all too often struggle at this point. What Paul is saying here is not, is not, and hear this well, dads and moms, he's not saying here that if your children get upset with you because you ask them or tell them to do a chore, or if your children get upset with you because you teach them the ways of Christ and they don't like the ways of Christ, 
Paul is not saying stop telling them about Jesus or stop giving them chores. No, what he's talking about here is don't exasperate them with sinful attitudes and sinful actions that provoke them to anger. Your children, all children, all of us at some point or another were in rebellion against the truth. We wanted to do our own thing. Every child who has ever been born has been mad at dad and mom as a two-year-old because, well, they were told to pick up their toys or whatever else it might be. That's not what Paul has in mind here. What Paul has in mind here is when we as dads and moms have sinful attitudes and we abuse our authority and we abuse with our words or with our strength or with our leadership, we mistreat others, mistreat our children and provoke them and discourage them. We are to teach our children, right? I hope you understand this, moms and dads, if you're here or if you're via live stream, I hope you understand this. The task of teaching your children, the primary responsibility for that falls on your shoulders. Not, not on the church, not on the schools, not on the fill-ins. The primary task of teaching your children the ways of Christ, the love of Christ, the law of Christ, the grace of Christ. That primary task belongs to you, fathers and mothers. Bring them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Deuteronomy 6. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Psalm 71, O God, from my youth you have taught me and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds so even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation. Your power to all those to come. If there is a verse of Scripture that I've kind of adopted as my own in this stage of my life, it is this one. Oh God, from my youth you have taught me. That is true. From the cradle, God has taught this man who as an infant child heard the gospel from my mother and father's lips. From my youth, from the cradle, oh Lord, you have taught me, and by God's grace, I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So that, so that even to old age, that's me right now, and gray hair, that's me right now, the psalmist says, oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation to my children and their children and their children. That's something worth living for, isn't it, parents? Isn't it, brothers, sisters in Christ? If not to your own children, to somebody else's children. Tell them the wonderful works of God. Nurture them 
in the things of Christ. We as parents have that primary responsibility. I should pause. Uh, I've thought about this a number of times. And and by the way, um, maybe I should have forewarned you. I'm going to go a few extra minutes today. I hope you don't mind. I my heart is full, and I've and I got to get some of this out. It's been sitting there for a long time. Time to get it out. Um, God has seen fit. Many of you would not know this about Gaylene and me. Uh, God has seen fit to give us six children that are all grown, ranging from 26 up to 42 years old. It may be hard for you to picture, but the way you picture Gaylene and me right now on a Sunday is I'm sitting in my chair and there's Gaylene right beside me. You know, we're there every, well, whenever we're here, we're there. Um, What you may have a hard time picturing is six children lined up. But every Sunday, and poor Gaylene, because I was preaching, this is any, I won't say that. Um, poor Gaylene had to manage six children on her own every Sunday care for them and corral them but there they were all lined up God's been very kind to us and by God's grace we have tried to be faithful parents Most of you have only known Gaylene and me in the empty nest stage. Uh, You've never seen that full pew. Um, But God entrusted six children to us. Um, And we sought to raise them and lead them. But I'm here to tell you, I was far from a perfect parent and we have far from perfect children I know what it's like to have a breakdown of relationship with my kids. I know what it's like to have a runaway child and to have to labor in love to woo him back home and into relationship again. I I know what it's like to get sinfully angry. I know what it's like to provoke my children to wrath. I, I know what it's like to fail. And in fact... I am finding the older I get, the harder it gets to talk about family issues in preaching because family issues are so challenging, aren't they? And we've all got regrets and we've all got sorrows and we've all got tears. I just want you to know as I'm preaching this, I'm not coming to you as somebody who's got it all together. I'm coming to you as a man who is flawed just as you are. But I also want you to have hope. We have six children. Four of them love Jesus. Two of them don't yet. I think one day they will. We've got children who are nurses. We have children who are pastors. got a son who's an entrepreneur who does stuff business-wise I can't even conceive of. Um, but we've had a lot of tears, a lot of sorrows. 
And it was in the course, the early stages of parenting. As I reflected on this text, Colossians 3 and verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So as I reflected on this probably some 35 years ago, I started to ask myself the question, how is it that I either do or might provoke my children and embitter them? And out of that reflection, I came up with uh, this outline, how to make your children mad in 12 easy steps. How to make your children mad in 12 easy steps. I'm going to give these to you quick. All right? Number one, if you've got notes you, or paper, you may want to take notes. Number one, how do you make your children mad in 12 easy steps? Number one, don't do anything. Don't do anything. Parents who don't parents, parent will have children who won't obey. And they won't learn to love Jesus. If you're detached, disengaged, deadbeat, too busy to be bothered, if you refuse to be active in nurturing and instructing and disciplining and teaching and loving your kids, if you don't do anything, then you will have children who live life accordingly. Number two, Never be pleased. You want to make your child mad? Never be pleased. Parents who are impossible to please will have children who give up trying. Instead, pour affection into your children. Pour love into your children. Pour hugs into your children. Love them, respect them, delight in them, encourage them. Be easily pleased by them. And you will find that that will, in most instances, leave a mark of love on their life. Number three, how to make your child mad in 12 easy steps Measure your child's worth by their looks, their IQ, or their vertical leap. Want to make a child mad? Treat them as being worthy based on whether or not they're beautiful. Or whether or not they're smart. Or whether or not they get a high vertical leap and are athletic. The world has standards by which they measure worth and value. And we as Christians, and as Christians, Christian parents, we need to repudiate, we need to reject the world's standards. And we as parents must demonstrate the value of our children is found not in her being a beauty queen, or in him being a superstar, or in either one of them being a rocket scientist, but in each and every one of them being a human child made in the image of God and so loved by God that He gave His only Son to redeem them. That's what our children need 
to hear and feel and sense from us day after day. They have value. They have worth because they're made in the image of God, redeemed with the blood of Christ. And if in fact they are followers of Christ, they are destined for eternal glory. How do you make your children mad in 12 easy steps? Don't do anything. Never be pleased. Measure their worth by their looks, their IQ, or their vertical leap. Number four, be unhappily married. Be unhappily married. There are many reasons to pursue our wife, our husband, and to be faithful in love. But one of them needs to be this, for the sake of our children. For the sake of our children. As much as is possible, as much as we can make it happen, let us love our spouses, the parents of our children. Parents who do not love each other passionately promote angry insecurity in their children. One pastor writes that children should be able to tell that their father loves their mother enough to die for her and their mother loves their father enough to live for him. Friends, again, I understand this is the the great challenge in preaching on family-related things. I understand that in bringing up this, parents need to love each other, that there may be wounds opened up. And please don't, please don't um, be overwhelmed either with guilt or grief or shame or, or even anger. Please know that God's grace is sufficient to cover all of that. Please, please know that if you confess your sins to the Lord, He is faithful and He is just to forgive your sins. Please know that as great as may be your failures, His grace is even greater. But also know, as much as is possible, that the state of your marriage affects your children. And they will be provoked if you fail to pursue happy marriage with your spouse. Number five, expect rebellion. And I have to hurry here. Expect rebellion. If you, if you want to have angry children, expect them to rebel. Parents who extra, expect trouble from their children usually get it. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by teen rebellion. But the expectation of lots of teen rebellion is an almost sure way either of experiencing it or of projecting it where it may not be or in living in such fear of it that we panic when our teens step out of line just a bit or in creating within us a kind of passive fatalistic approach Teenagers are going to rebel. There's nothing I can do about it. Let's just hold on and see what happens. No. No. 
expect rebellion in that way and most likely you're going to get it. I am not saying that if you've had rebellion, it's your fault or if your teens have rebelled. I'm just saying, let us make sure that we don't expect it in such a way that we live in fear or we project it onto them or we stir them to anger. Number six, expose children to angry voices. One of the easiest ways to make your children mad is to expose them to a lot of mad people. Proverbs 22 and verse 24 says, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. There's a powerful life lesson there. Don't make a friendship with an angry man. Don't go with them. Don't walk with them. Don't hang with them. Don't live, linger with them because you will learn their ways. If you hang around with anger, you're going to become angry. There's a basic Bible principle here, and that is, uh, to borrow the words of one man, you become what you behold. What you focus on, what you linger with, what you look at, will change you and you will begin to conform to this. This works positively in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, an amazing text of Scripture. Paul says, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another as we behold His glory. Friends, if you want, you want your life to be marked by wonder and glory, then behold with affection and faith the glory of Christ. Live your life daily looking for more of Jesus and seeing more of Him, and you will become more like Him. But the opposite is true. Have you ever noticed when, uh, when a couple has been married for 50 years, <coughs> they start looking like each other. They start acting like each other. You know how many times in the last few years I've been sitting minding my own business in my chair and all of a sudden Gaylene says something that's exactly what I'm thinking. What are you doing in there, hon? How'd you do that? You become what you behold. The more you hang out with certain people, the more you're going to be like those people. This works positively. The more we behold Christ, the more we become like Him. It works negatively. In Psalm 115, there's this text about people who worship idols that have eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear and hands that do not work and feet that do not move. And then the text concludes with this, and those who make them become like them. Those who worship idols of stone develop stony hearts. Those who focus on images that can't see or hear or feel or touch or move become people 
who can't hear or feel or touch or move. We become what we behold. As a parent, I believe it is one of my great responsibilities to guard my children as much as is possible from the angry world that is out there. Angry tweets and angry Facebook and angry news and angry music and angry movies and angry politics and angry fill-in-the-blank. If it is true that anger begets anger, it is important It is important that we not expose our children to the out-of-control anger that's in our world today. Number seven, overreact. Overreact. Parents who scream over the proverbial spilled milk will have kids whose behavior and words scream back. Take each day and each issue in stride. No matter how bad it gets, and believe me, I've been through some bad. Don't panic. A soft answer turns away wrath. Number eight, play favorites. Parents who play favorites among their children will not be favored by their children. Study, if you want, Genesis 27 and the parental favoritism of Isaac and Rebekah and learn the lessons well as that plays out in that text. Number nine, be a phony. Be a phony. I remember the time when I was sitting in my chair and in our home in Tom's River and I was in my, I always have had a recliner. I was sitting in my recliner and I was all comfortable and a couple of my sons were on the couch and our youngest son, David, probably, I don't know, three years old at the time, (coughs) David was trying to put away his toys and we had this big box of blocks and uh, he was pulling on this thing, groaning and moaning and, and I'm watching this happen and I'm watching his Brothers just sit there uh, totally immobile and unresponsive to uh, the need of uh, their younger brother in the moment. And I was just on the verge of rebuking my sons for not loving their little brother when the Holy Spirit said to me, Tim, you're still sitting in your recliner. (laughs) And I was like, whoa. So I, with the Spirit's help, I, I decided, don't say a word. Don't say a word to the brothers. Just get up and help your son. And I resolved from that day forward, not that I've done this perfectly by any stretch, but I resolved when I saw my son, my children, and others in need of help to jump to help, to cheerfully help, and to see what would be the impact of that on my other kids. And you know what? In the matter of just two or three weeks, my other children were beginning to jump to help. If I had rebuked it, they probably would have seen my phoniness. But Dad, you didn't help. Oh, parents, 
it matters that we are authentic. Our children, they can see through the phony. I'm sure that by now many of you are aware that there are studies being done that show that a large percentage of children of Christians are wandering away from the faith and abandoning the faith when they go away to college. In fact, the statistics show that two-thirds of those that have been raised in a Christian home, two-thirds leave church when they enter college. So only one-third stay connected to the faith. Now, some good news. Another third of those actually come back to the faith when they have children, which is a fascinating dynamic. But here's something that I I want us to, to notice. Those same studies show that when the family is, quote, a committed Christian family, when when the family loves church and loves fellowship and and loves prayer and talks about Jesus during the week. And when the family, when it's evident to the children that mom and dad mean it when they say, we love Jesus, then two-thirds stay with the church. It matters that we are real. And I want you to have hope, brothers and sisters. Because I think in today's world, we can get pretty pessimistic and pretty negative and pretty fearful and despairing when it comes to our children. Oh, it's beyond hope. No, love Jesus. And love your kids. Be real. Be real. It's not to say that every one of our children will become believers or anything like that, but it is to say that authenticity leaves a mark so that even if our kids forsake the faith, they will be able to look at us and say, but dad and mom, I respect you because you're real. Because you're real. Number 10, never say I'm sorry. Parents who never say I'm sorry to their kids will be sorry over their kids. If you're too proud to admit when you're wrong and to ask forgiveness from your children, you will raise stubborn, willful, self-righteous children just like you who will never admit that they are wrong. Number 11, treat children like adults and teenagers like children. Parents who parent their younger children as if they are older and their older children as if they are younger are headed for disaster. All too often, parents will reverse the process. Kids will be given free reign from birth up till 13. Whatever the kids want, the kid gets. And then all of a sudden, that's not cute anymore. And all of a sudden, parents realize, oh, this 13-year-old is headed for trouble. And they try to rein the teenager in. That doesn't work. Far, far better it is to exercise strict, loving rule in your young children's life. And as they get older, 
gradually release them. Release them into adulthood. There is truth there that we don't have time to expand. Number 12, parent with a whip, not a towel. Jesus told us to wipe one another's, wash one another's feet. If we are parents who rule and have dominion over our homes, if as dads we think we're king of the roost and everybody is there to serve us and wait on us, we are headed for disaster. But if we are the ones who serve, if, if we are the ones who wash feet, if we are the ones who pour out our life for wife and children, then our families will see the authenticity of our love and will become much more responsive to it. If you lead in dominance and dominion, you will lose the ones you love. If you lead by being the greatest servant of all in your home, you will have hope for your family. Oh, my friends, uh, there's so much here. What I would suggest, I truly would suggest is that if you are new to parenting or struggling in parenting, find some mature parenting examples in the church and go to them and say, can you help me? Seek counsel, seek input, seek advice. Galen and I early on, we, we sought all the help and counsel we could find. We knew we needed help. We all need help. Seek out that advice. I encourage you, uh, families, if, if there are husbands and wives here, I, I encourage you to, to go home and talk about these things. I encourage you to talk to your children about these things. Feel free to ask them, hey, kids, how am I doing as a dad, as a mom? Is there anything I'm doing that provokes you? I want to talk about that. I want to ask your forgiveness for that. Can I close with this? I want you to notice that God is the opposite of everything I just talked about. If you want to make your kids mad, don't do anything. Be a deadbeat. Our Father in heaven has done everything for us. There has never been a deadbeat moment in the heart of our Heavenly Father. He has done everything for us. You want to make your kids mad? Be a phony. Our God is not a phony. He is real. You want to make your kids mad? Never be pleased with them. Well, know this that God in Christ is pleased with you. He is smiling over you in His love. You are precious to Him. You are delightful to Him. The day is coming when He's going to say, well done. You can take every one of these things that you that are expressions of our parental failure and realize God is the complete opposite of it all. We have the perfect Father. You may have had a terrible father growing up, but you have a perfect father now who will never leave you, never forsake you, who has loved you so very much that He gave His only begotten Son who poured out His life 
for your sake, that you might become his adopted sons and daughters, part of his family forever and ever and ever. May it be that the Lord's gospel, good news, grace will carry us as we move forward in these things. Let's pray. Father, oh, how precious to be able to call God our Father. Thank you for being a perfect Father. Thank you for loving us with a perfect love. Thank you, Lord, for giving grace to us all, including the children here, to hear this bit longer message today. I hope that your spirit will press it gently but lastingly into each of our hearts. And now, O Lord, God our Father, thank you for your love. Lord Jesus Christ, you who are our older brother in the family of God, thank you for your love. Holy Spirit, you who have given us a new heart to respond to the love of God, thank you for your love. And may that love of the Father, Son, and Spirit rest on each one of you until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God. Thank you for your endurance here uh, today. God be with you. Stay safe, drive safe, stay warm. And we'll look forward to seeing you again. Amen.
Is where you are, where you are. 